Let's get after it. I'm glad you guys came back. Uh, this is uh, this morning we're going to talk about the marriage recipe, and I want to talk about the makings of a good marriage. Like if you want to cook up something good, you need a good recipe to follow to do that, uh, and you need to have the right ingredients. Well, if you want to cook up a good marriage, what's the recipe? What's the recipe to do that? But here's the thing. Uh, pretty much everybody in here is already married. Um, so we're past cooking it up. You're like, it's baked, right? <laughs> it's already baked. In fact, it feels a little burnt. Uh, or it feels like we may have taken this out of the oven too soon. And maybe you're feeling like this isn't tasting like I thought it would. Um, I thought it'd be sweeter than this. Or I thought it'd be spicier than this. Right? I thought it would be different, and you kind of have this ideal of marriage, and you're into it now, and you feel like, I don't know if it's tasting as good as uh, I expected it to. Or when I see another couple and I hear them talk about their marriage, I feel like our marriage doesn't taste like what they talk about, and there's something missing. Um, so uh, what ingredients can we add to an existing marriage to help? You ever see that uh, show on the Food Network where they just bring out the baskets and they got to open the baskets and then make something of that? Anybody ever see that show? What's it called? Chopped. Chopped. Yeah. Uh, That's what we're doing. Like, you already got your basket. Like, what's in the basket is in the basket. That's all you got to work with. Like, you can reach into the pantry and put some more ingredients. Like, that's where we're at uh, right now. Like, how can we take what you got and kind of make something better uh, in your marriage um, so that's what we're going to do. And in fact, my wife, uh, one of the things she's really known for, probably even more than singing and songwriting, is her chocolate chip cookies. Um, and I know what you're thinking. You're like, yeah, you look like a guy that's married to a wife who likes to bake. <laughs> Appreciate that. Uh, but she makes the best chocolate chip cookies ever. And I don't just say that uh, because that's like a nice thing to say. Like she does. It's just a fact. Uh, my wife's cookies are better than your wife's cookies. It's, uh, it's how she does it. So everybody's aware of her cookies. Um, she brings them often. She treats people with them. Uh, but early on in our marriage, she was going away. I think she was like on a Nashville trip or something, and I'm home, and I wanted to bake some of her cookies. Uh, so I was like, I'll try it. I find the recipe for it, and I'm going through to make these cookies. And I see an ingredient for these cookies that it calls for some salt. Now... I have never eaten a cookie and thought, this needs more salt. So I'm thinking, she put this in here so people couldn't duplicate her cookies. It's totally something she would do. Like, I'm just going to guard this. And like, so I'm like, no, not going to trick me. So I don't, put, so I don't put salt on my cookies. So I made the cookies without salt. And they turned out all right. I still ate them all. Uh, <laughs> But it didn't taste like it tastes when she makes them. Some, something was different. And, and sometimes it's like, this doesn't taste quite right. And it's not that it's bad. It's just not as good as you would hope it'd be. And I think that might explain a lot, or describe a lot of our marriage. I'm not going to say it's bad. I just thought it'd be better than this. Um, so I want to talk to you about some ingredients that we can add to our marriage uh, that might improve the flavor. I got seven ingredients to give you. Uh, They're biblical ingredients, and maybe you already got them. Maybe you got some of it, but you need to add some more. Um, I just hope to start a conversation. 
uh, maybe some helpful fights where, where you can go home and kind of talk about some of these ingredients that you think are missing or needed to be increased. Or maybe you'll reach into your own biblical pantry and pull out some ingredients like, he didn't mention this, but I think we need to add this. And if I could just kind of stir up a conversation for you to examine your marriage and say, like, what are some biblical ingredients or principles that maybe are missing that we need to um, to add to improve the flavor of our marriage. So that's where we're going. We got seven ingredients. I'd encourage you to write them down. And you may be like, I think we're fine here. I don't think this applies. I do think we need to talk about this one. He didn't mention this. I think we need to add that. So that's, that's where we're going. So seven ingredients. Uh, we're going to go. You guys ready? All right. Uh, number one, lower expectations. Lower expectations. Uh, have you ever put a little too much of something in a dish and it kind of ruined the flavor a little bit? Like, oh, this is too salty. I put too much of it in there. Uh, maybe you've brought too high of expectations uh, into your marriage. and Maybe the issue that's doing the most harm in your marriage is your own idealism. Uh, we get these ideals of marriage held up to us and books we read and shows we watch and movies we see and it just kind of glamorizes this perfect thing and any kind of conflict works out uh, within the two-hour movie period time and you just kind of see this scripted uh, thing for us and we kind of hold that up to our own real-life marriage and we find ourselves frustrated. Um, there's, a, there's a growing trend. I'm not even saying it's bad. Maybe it's bad. I, I don't know. There of couples... Uh, now, now it's going to apply in here, and you're going to think I just judged you. I didn't. I'm not judging you much. Um, <laughs> but when people write their own wedding vows, like that's sweet. But maybe have somebody review those because I always feel like I think you're starting off lying to each other. This is like some really high expectations or promises that don't seem realistic there. It's like, I'm just waiting for more, like more realistic wedding vows. Like on your wedding day, you're, you sit there and you just tell your wife, this is the best I'm ever going to look, right? <laughs> I really can watch football all day on Saturday. Like you just know, no, but it's, sometimes we just kind of have these idealistic expectations we throw uh, in our marriage. Bonhoeffer, in a book, I think it's called Life Together, that he wrote uh, talking about community, he, he said this, and I think it really applies to marriage. He says, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. You know what he's saying there? Like sometimes we have this ideal of what community can be like and we just love the ideal, but we ended up destroying the community we actually have because the real community doesn't measure up to that. But if you just actually love the people around you, you're going to create community. The same thing is true in marriage. Like we can have this ideal of this is what I think a husband should be. This is what I think a wife should be. And this is what I think my marriage should be. And you love this ideal and your ideal kind of crushes the reality that you're actually in. But if you would just love the husband you have, love the wife that you have, love the marriage you been given, you'll actually create or find happiness in that marriage. And our ideals can be crushing. Listen, you are a sinner and you married another sinner. How do you think that's going to go? <laughs> like you have your own selfishness and insecurities and your sin struggles. And then you're going to say, uh, I'm going to find another sinner with their unique struggles and selfishness. And let's do life together. Uh, you're going to have some friction. You're going to have some, some difficulties. That's going to be challenging. And idealism can be a marriage killer. Let's look at Ephesians 4. This is what he says. He says, therefore, 
a prisoner for the Lord. Now, pause right there. Talk about idealism. You think, well, if I'm going to follow Christ, then life's going to go better for me. But Paul says he's a prisoner for the Lord. Like he's suffering because he's following Jesus. He got into a difficult situation. So he says, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. Now, humility is extremely important in marriage because it puts idealism in check. And idealism often uh, comes with a sense of entitlement. Like I deserve this. I deserve to be happy. I deserve a wife who does, you know, X. I deserve a husband who will do this. I I deserve this. Now, biblically speaking, you deserve wrath and judgment. So whatever spouse and marriage you have, that's, you're doing pretty well. Um, from what we deserve in the, you're like, no, it's a living hell. No, if you were actually in hell, you'd be happy for the marriage that you have. You need some humility to kind of put the idealism in check. Now, I'll say this. It's okay to have good desires. Like, I would desire my spouse to do this. I would desire to see my spouse that. But you need to be careful that your desires don't turn into expectations. Because when your desires, good desires, turn into expectations, you lose all sense of gratitude. Like I could desire, like when I come home, I want to sit down with my wife and I want her to ask me about my day. And I just want to talk about all of my day. And I can desire that. But if I expect that and it happens, I'm not thankful that she did that. She did what I expected. I expected you to do that. You lose all sense of gratitude. So you can have desires, but don't let those turn into expectations. And the way to guard that is to walk with humility, to not have this sense of entitlement that you deserve. Now, let's read the whole passage. Therefore, I, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit, and the bond of peace. Now, bearing with one another, that is not very romantic at all, but it's an extremely important ingredient in marriage. That you're a sinner, you married a sinner, and there's gonna be times in your life where you just bear with each other. Yeah, I know he's kind of like that. I know she's like that, but this is the sin struggles. This is the imperfections in marriage. And, and we just bear with each other and we fight for unity. We don't, we don't make mountains out of molehills. Like we kind of just lower the expectations a little bit and deal with reality. And if you don't lower your expectations, you may crush your marriage. You may crush your marriage. You will never live up to your ideal. But if you just love the spouse that you got, you will do wonders for your marriage. So the first ingredient that you may want to consider is lower expectations. Number two, uh, gratitude for hardships. Gratitude for hardships. I think this is a very common missing ingredient. Gratitude for hardships. It's almost like a foreign food. You're just like, I didn't even know people ate that. Like, what do you mean gratitude for hardships? It's like, remember when we had that fight, right? And there was overreactions on both sides and we didn't like really talk to each other for two days. Like, yeah, when that happened, I forgot to be thankful for God during that time. Like, like we just kind of like, I didn't even know that was applied or that was something that people do, but it is an important ingredient for Christian marriages. In fact, uh, we're in James right now. Both of our churches are walking through uh, the book of James. So let's refresh our memory. This is in James chapter 1. Uh, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You guys remember this passage? 
few handful of weeks ago. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfast, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, this isn't just crazy talk from James. Paul actually says something similar in Romans. Uh, this is Romans five. He says this. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So there's this idea that, listen, the hardships in life, God actually uses to kind of grow us and produce a a character in us. Marriage is hard and marriage uh, in marriage, we're going to go through difficult things. We're going to have fights. We're going to have disappointments. And sometimes our reaction to hard things in marriage is, is, I made a mistake. I don't think this was right. It's not working. I'm not happy. But listen, marriage is not so much for your happiness as it is for your holiness. And that is a perspective shift that can be super freeing to how you see and deal with conflict in your marriage. Let me say it again. Marriage is not so much for your happiness as it is for your holiness. It is the main relationship that is going to refine your godliness. Like it is the main relationship where you're going to have to show patience, where you're going to have to give forgiveness, where you're going to have to be gentle, where you're going to have to be long-suffering. All of these godly things. It's the main relationship that kind of works those things out. In fact, um, here's kind of a, a wild thought, but stay with me. What if damage in your marriage is helpful in your godliness? What if damage in your marriage is helpful in your godliness? Like, I would have never worked on those issues if that conflict in that marriage didn't bring it to the surface. I would have never learned to pray like I learned to pray in that season where we had so much strife and conflict. I would have never grown in my patience and gentleness if we didn't have to kind of work through that fight that we had. We tend not to maybe look at that perspective, but the word testing in James chapter 1, 3 that we looked at there is a word used to describe the refining of gold. Um, so the way that you would refine gold is you would heat it up. Uh, and when you heat it up, it brings the impurities to the surface and then you'd skim them off and you'd heat it up and it bring the impurities to the surface and you'd skim them off. He's saying that that's what's happening in the sense of conflict. When you have marital conflict, it kind of heats things up and it brings things to the surface. Oh, I am more selfish than I realized. Oh, I am not very patient. Oh, I do struggle with insecurities. Oh, oh it kind of just brought that to the surface and you have to kind of deal with it at time. Now, what would it do to your marriage if you could look at the difficult things you've gone through or are going through and have a gratitude to God for them. Because you know, oh God, this is not fun, but you're using this to refine me. You're using this to kind of reveal things that need to be, that I need to deal with. You're using this to kind of shape character in me and grow my godliness. 
And if you had that perspective, even in the midst of this conflict, that it wasn't just devastating and frustrating, why are we having this fight again? But if you kind of looked at a broader perspective, like, oh God, this is a tool. Like you're using this to, to grow me. And if you are grateful to God for those trials, what might that do to your anger or your frustrations with your spouse? So, so maybe an ingredient that has been missing in your marriage is just a gratitude for those hardships. You didn't make a mistake. It's not that it's not working. It's that it is working. It, it's, it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's heating you up and it's bringing things to the surface to be dealt with for your holiness, not just your happiness. So those conflicts in marriage, it's like, yes, that's marriage. That's God doing exactly what God does in your marriage. If you could have that perspective, you could grow in your your gratitude for those difficulties. And if you grow in your gratitude for those difficulties, I bet your frustration with your marriage or your spouse will shrink in that. All right, so number three, full forgiveness. Full forgiveness, like the whole thing, not just a little dash or a sprinkle, but full forgiveness. Maybe what your marriage is missing is kind of real, complete, full forgiveness. And then, you know, things have happened uh, where, where people have been offended and hurt legitimately. And it's like, I know we moved on from that um, and we're still together. Uh, but you just feel like, I feel like this marriage still tastes a little bitter. I feel like there's still a little bit. I mean, it's subtle. It's not like that uh, kind of spicy anger that hits you right, you know, with that first bite when it first happened. It's more of that afterburn. You know, have you ever eaten something that they said, oh, it's spicy, and you're like, no, it's not that bad. And then it kind of comes later, like, oh, there it is. It's like that afterheat. It's like, no, we've kind of gotten past that, like, spicy anger that's right away, but but you think you're over it, then all of a sudden, oh, well, that topic came up or that person showed up. It's like, I guess we're not over it. Like, there's the heat. There, there it is there. And you kind of feel this like um, some of you are nodding your head. Like, be careful if your spouse is looking at you. Um, you're like, oh, no, we still need to deal with that. But it just feels like our, our, the flavor of our marriage, there's still bitterness in it. You, you still have a lingering resentment. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 13. You guys know this passage. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Now that word resentful, in some translations, I might say it keeps no record of wrongs. Like it doesn't carry around this resent. And maybe what your marriage needs is a big dose of let it go. Seriously, just let it, let it go. Like you just, you're just holding on to it. Like you are so hurt, you're so angry, but you, but you just cling to it and you, you bring it up and you bring it up or you think you've let it go, but then, then it comes to the surface again and you just haven't really forgiven. And what you need to add to your marriage is just a big bottle of let it go. And it's hard. I mean, it's easier said than done because no one can hurt you like your spouse. No one can cause that kind of pain or disappointment or betrayal. But your ability to forgive your spouse is connected to keeping your spouse in their proper place. Listen to me now. They are not, your spouse is not your main provider of fulfillment 
or belonging or value. And if you put that on them, you will crush them and they will disappoint you. Spouses make terrible gods. Spouses make terrible gods. But when you kind of elevate them in that position, and it's like, this is where I find my value. This is where I find my uh, fulfillment. And this is my source of happiness. Then when they hurt you, you will never be able to forgive them because it was the ultimate betrayal. How could you do this to me? How could you of all people do this to me? How could you hurt me in this way? Because they're a sinner. But, but you kind of put this pedestal and then it's like, I'm unable to forgive, but they were never meant to be ultimate. And the irony is that when you make them ultimate, not only are you unable to forgive them when they hurt you, but you are also unable to really love them. Not in their weakness, not, not in their imperfections, not, not in their struggles, because you're looking for what they give you instead of what you give them. Look at Colossians uh, chapter three, it says this. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, there it is again. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Let's leave that up there. Um, They can look at it. But your ability to extend forgiveness to your spouse is connected to your understanding of your own forgiveness from God. Like he or she in your relationship is not your ultimate provider of fulfillment or belonging or value. God is. And he will never leave you or forsake you. That is how you're able to forgive. When you have that sense of security in who you are in Christ. Like how does this passage start out? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Like before we get into challenging you to forgive others, I want to remind you of who you are. You are chosen one and you are beloved by God. So if you are unable to forgive your spouse, maybe you are struggling to understand how much you are loved by God. And maybe you're putting on your spouse what you can only find in God. And when you find what you can only find in God, then you are more free to love your spouse, to forgive your spouse, to show grace and patience to your spouse. Stop looking for your husband or your wife to be perfect and love them for the sinner they are because of the Savior you have. It's like, I don't don't need you to save me. I already got a savior. I don't need you to validate me. I've already been validated. I don't need you to give me fulfillment. I already found fulfillment in Christ Jesus. And when that's the case, now we can love each other the way we're called to love. Now we can be two imperfect people in union together to show other people this gospel covenant love that we've been commanded to live out. But that's important. Maybe your relationship needs full forgiveness. Maybe there's something you're holding on to and you need to look, why am I holding on to this? Why why am I unable to forgive my spouse in this way? And maybe it's because you haven't really found your value and belonging in your savior. Number four, selfishness. Oh, no, no, that's not the ingredient. Don't add that. Selflessness. (laughs) Now, 
Nobody wants to add selfishness, but just like I made that mistake, they're pretty close. They're similar. Like you could easily like reach for selflessness and oh, oh I grabbed the selfishness. In fact, uh, Moses one time, he, had, he struggles with Mexican food because when he was young, he made toast and he was going to put cinnamon on his toast, but he put a whole bunch of cumin uh, and just bit right into it and had a really bad experience, right? Sometimes that's the idea like, oh, I want to be selfish, but we end up being selfish. But selfishness is toxic. Uh, it is not. Did I say it wrong again? All right. See how confusing it is? You're just like, oh, I'm thinking I'm like you, you need to be selfless, and we often end up being selfish. And it is toxic. It's it's not an ingredient, it's more like a mold. In fact, a few weeks ago I was at the Bodine's house and they cooked up some chili and they pulled out a bag of chips from deep in the cupboard. It was like from 1940s or something. Uh <laughs> And it was like the, it was discolored. Uh, and I was like, oh, it's just stale chips. I can eat stale chips. Let's not let them go to waste. Handful in the mouth. I'm like, I am chewing mold, like literal mold. It was the most nastiest thing ever. Uh, chili was great though. Chili was great. Just, just chips were lacking there. But nobody wants selfishness. Nobody wants that in their marriage. It does damage. But we have to ask, has it gotten in? Like, has it grown like mold? Uh, Look at Philippians chapter two. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, see that come up a lot, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, um, if this should apply in our relationships with one another, how much more should this be lived out in our marriages? Like we should put our spouse ahead of ourselves. And just like in all transparency, I am terrible at this. Like marriage has revealed how selfish I am. Like whenever it comes to like what show we're going to watch or what movie we're going to watch, I, they can give suggestions, but it's like, yeah, I don't want to watch that. We're, we're, we're going to watch this. Or I'll, I'll go downstairs. But then it's like, no, I want you to watch what I want to watch with me. But not. like, Johnny, it was just like, where are we going to go out to eat? This I feel like this is turning into a big confession. Uh, it was Johnny's birthday. I was like, where do you want to go? Now, I'm trying to lead our family, so I'm going to narrow this down. I'll give you a couple options. Texas Roadhouse or Olive Garden. Let's stick with the chains. They're proven. Uh, they've seen to work. Uh, being successful, let's go there. And she's like... Okay, let's go to Olive Garden. I was like, eh, let's go to Texas Roadhouse. That's closer. <laughs> it was her birthday. It's like, and she's the sweetest child. She's like, yeah, that'd be great. It's like, good. I'm glad we're on the same page. <laughs> but selfishness, like it's, it's toxic. It's toxic. And Jesus told us to lose our life for his sake to find it. And I'm telling you, if you die to yourself, you'll find your marriage. Like if you're willing to die to yourself and your desires and what you want, I think, I think you'll find something sweeter in marriage. I mean, so many marriage problems just boil down to selfishness. Like you're just fighting for what you want. You're just fighting for your spirit. You just want to kind of put yourself first. And you need to add some selflessness to your marriage. I mean, maybe you feel like, I don't think our marriage is tasting quite like I think it should taste. Maybe because it's got way too much of you in it. You just put too much of me in there. And you can't quite diagnose like, oh, why is this like, I'm just, don't think it tastes quite like it should. What if you put more of your spouse into it and less of yourself? What, What might that do to the flavor? Number five, we've all been waiting for this one. 
sex. Uh, maybe what your marriage needs is a lot more than just a dash of sex. It's kind of like chili. You know, when, I don't know your situation, but uh, when, when Marcy makes chili, put in the hot sauce, it might be just a little bit. And when she's not looking, I'll be like, yeah, that's a bunch of chili, hot sauce. Like, you want to heat it up. And as Christians, I think we are quick to tell young people that sex is for marriage, but we need to spend more time telling married people that sex is for marriage. I'm going to say that again, because I don't know if it landed. I think in the church, we can spend a lot of time telling young people, hey, sex is for marriage, sex is for marriage, sex is for marriage. But we don't spend enough time telling married people, sex is for marriage, sex is for marriage. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Because each, but, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, he's talking about sex here, and I just, you, you got to at least notice how non-romantic that is. <laughs> it's like, all right. Sexual temptation exists. You got conjugal rights. You don't really own your body. You don't really own your body. Uh, if you delay too long, it's going to get worse. Satan's going to creep in there. Perhaps, maybe you can take a break, uh, but you both got to agree upon it, and it's a limited time, and you better both be praying. And you're just like, oh, I'm praying. I'm praying, all right. <laughs> Like, there's just, you got to read this, and it's like, oh, romance. Like, this is very non-romantic. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever been to other marriage conferences. You're like, yeah, it's a lot different than this one. Um, <laughs> I remember being, or listening to someone talk about marriage, uh, and the speaker was like, guys, sex starts in the kitchen. And I was like, that sounds good. Oh, sex in the kitchen. <laughs> but... As I listened, <laughs> it's not what he was talking about. <laughs> he was talking about if you want to, you know, improve your love life in the bedroom, then do the dishes. And listen, I am all for doing the dishes. Be a help around the house. Be a servant. Yes. I like what Paul's saying better. <laughs> Let me put it maybe in a more offensive way. Since we're already here. All right. <laughs> Wives, don't act like a prostitute. Do you know what I mean? It's not an exchange of goods and services. D don't, don't treat sex like, well, if you do the dishes, then you might get lucky. Right? Like it's this exchange of things. Like if you do this for me, then I'm going to do this for you. Like it's, it's just like prostitution. It's like, well, that's going to cost you something. I was like, that's nowhere in that text. 
He's like, no, so there's sexual temptation. There's an enemy that wants to pull us away. There's conjugal rights. Your body doesn't belong to you. Your body doesn't belong to you. Like there's just a different perspective given to that. Now, that's not to say husbands don't do the dishes. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying don't treat sex like this kind of exchange of goods and services in a marriage. Like that's such a gift to be able to provide love in, a, in those contexts. And, and men too, your wife needs affection. She needs to be admired. She needs to be touched. She needs to be hugged. She needs to be uh, shown that she's valuable and precious to you. And guys, we live in a sexualized world. I mean, crazy sexualized world. You, you try to find a TV show that just doesn't push nudity into your face or show just unrealistic uh, examples of sex, the reality shows. I'm just like, are you kidding me? Like, like we just lived in a such a, a grossly sexualized world where we're becoming desensitized to it as a culture. And a sexualized world can do harm to sex and marriage. A sexualized world can do harm to sex and marriage. But listen to me. When sex is being perverted in our world, we need to be more attentive to it being good in our marriages. You guys tracked with me on that? When sex is being perverted in our world, we need to be more attentive to it being good in our marriages. Because I mean, even that text in, in 1 Corinthians 7, is he's saying, because of sexual immorality, that's how he starts out the section, because of sexual immorality, because you're surrounded by a distortion and a perversion of sex everywhere you look, because every TV show that you have puts it in your face, because every commercial you see, everything sexualizes everything. What Paul's saying, because of sexual immorality, make sure you have good sex in marriage. That's what he's saying. So listen, don't, deprive each other. There are needs. And marriage is the only place those needs are supposed to be met. So as you assess the flavor of your marriage, you ask each other, how is our sex life? And how could it be better? Number six, boundaries and rhythms. You ever take a bite of something and you feel like it's missing something, but you're not quite sure what it is? Uh, I think boundaries can often be a forgotten ingredient in marriage. We don't like boundaries because they can seem restrictive to us rather than protective, but boundaries are a way that we honor our marriage. Boundaries are a way to say, like, I want to protect what I have. I don't want to lose what I got. I love what I have. Nobody, nobody plans on having an affair, but it happens. And it happens, sadly, way more than we think it does. Nobody gets into like, oh, yeah, someday I would love to cheat on my spouse. No, nobody does that. But it happens. And it usually begins with non-sinful but unwise decisions. Oh, we just kind of exchanged a bunch of private emails. We just started to really hang out to each other at work. Oh, this is my, this is my work wife. Don't ever use that term. 
right? This is, you know, we just have a lot of alone meetings together. We just kind of establish some inside jokes that are just between the two of us. Oh, we kind of share some secrets in there. We kind of had a lunch that wasn't probably a good idea. And you just kind of pave the way for a place where it's like, I never thought I'd get to this place. And I got there with a bunch of decisions that by themselves, anybody would look at and be like, I don't know, necessarily know if that's wrong. So I'm not going to say anything, but they build and they build and they build. And then all of a sudden, over the cliff you go. Now, um, let me give you a, a passage to kind of show us where we're going. These are Proverbs. Proverbs 22.3 says, The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. Now, in case you think like, I don't know if that's stuck, a few chapters later he says this. This is Proverbs 27.12. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. He's like, I don't know if they really got it. I'm going to just kind of repeat that one. And it's like the prudent sees danger. It's not that he's in danger. He looks and he says, I see it. So he does something about it before he gets there. But the, the simple, or another way to say that in the Proverbs, is the foolish one. They, just, they see danger too. They just keep going. They take no precautions for it. They don't change anything about it. Now, with our staff in Cedar Rapids, we have a, what we call a guardrails talk every year. Now, here's what, it, here's what it is. I'll give you the summarized version. You drive along a road, you see what a guardrail, you guys know what I'm talking about? Okay, they, they put guardrails like a good three or four feet away from the cliff. Technically, if the guardrail wasn't there, you could drive there. You're not going to go over the cliff. You're fine. But they try to let you hit something before you go over the cliff. So guardrails are things where it's like, it's not necessarily wrong, but, but I'm going to put a guardrail there to protect me from going. I, I see danger, so I'm going to do something about it. So I'm going, to, I'm going to place some guardrails in my life, the things that it's like not necessarily sin, but I'm not going to do it because of where that might lead or the danger that that might lead to. Now, I'm not here to tell you what your guardrail should be, but I am here to tell you, you need guardrails. And if you don't think that you do, you're foolish and you're headed for danger. Talk as a couple. What are our guardrails? What are the things that it's like, it might not necessarily be wrong, but I think it's extremely unwise and it can lead to some hard things. And in the sake of our marriage, for us to claim, like, I love what we have, and I want to protect it. What are some guardrails we could set up to protect our marriage? It shows that you value it, and maybe that's missing in your marriage. Maybe it doesn't feel like it's something you love and you want to protect. But um, more than just boundaries to keep us from danger, we also need rhythms to keep us connected. Here's a marriage you, or a passage you probably never connected to marriage. Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. How does iron sharpen iron? Frequent, constant friction. And I know some of you are like, yeah, that's what we need. Not that kind of friction. We already talked about that. I'm talking about like touch points, intentional connectivity. That's, that's what sharpens iron. And, and you need, uh, to keep your marriage sharp, you need intentional, uh, reinforcing, sharpening 
connecting points. We need date night. We need dinner, dinner together. We need a rhythm of going on walks. We need a rhythm of like every Friday we do this. Or, or we need some rhythm like we're intentionally having moments together as a married couple where we're deepening our connectivity to us. We're sharpening our relationship. Because the best protection that you can have is not your boundaries, but your connection. Now, you should have boundaries. I'm not saying not. But the best protection you can have is the love relationship you invest in and build. And you need both boundaries and rhythms in that. All right, last one, number seven. Uh, See marriage as worship. Uh, This is not an optional ingredient. In fact, this is the main dish. And sadly, I think marriages suffer not because they're hard, but because they're often misunderstood. And we don't really see what marriage is, and we don't really understand what marriage is about. We, we kind of looked at this passage in kind of isolated chunks uh, last night, but let's read the whole thing together. This is, go back to Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church." Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Uh, now, I appreciate that he's saying like, hey, this, there's a mystery behind this union, this, this love between a husband and a wife and, and this covenant. There is a mystery to it, but, but the mystery is pointing uh, or telling a bigger story, and it's really about Christ and the church. And then at the end he says, however, you should love your wife and let, make sure wives respect their husbands. Now, that's not a tag on of like, hey, this is really about Christ, but uh, by the way, make sure you still love your wife. That's not what he's saying. That however, um, might be, we might better understand something like moreover. It, he's saying, how much more should we love our wives and respect our husbands when we get the picture that it's pointing to? When we understand your marriage is not just about your marriage. Like your marriage is about the gospel. And if you get that mystery, how much more should we live out this covenantal, gospel-reflecting relationship within our marriage? How much more should we forgive each other when we know that this is a reflection from Christ in this church? How much more should we be patient with each other? How much more should we um, suffer, long-suffer, and bear with one another when we know it's this picture of the gospel? Your marriage more than meeting your needs or fulfilling your dreams, is meant to be a picture of God's love for his people. It is his gospel on display through your marriage. So when you have to forgive your spouse, when you have to be patient with your spouse, when you have to long suffer with your spouse, when we understand this, might our reaction be like, what an opportunity. What an opportunity to put God's love on display in my marriage.
Now, right before this, here's what Paul says. I'm going to read a bigger chunk. This is right before this section. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he's talking about singing and praising. He's talking about worship and how we ought to live because the days are evil. And then at the end in verse 21, he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now you would think he would say, submitting to one another out of reverence for one another. But he doesn't. He says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He connects the relationship uh, between a husband and a wife to a relationship between a husband and God. And he connects the relationship between a wife and a husband to a wife and God. He's saying the reason that you love your spouse, the reason that you respect your spouse, the reason that you serve your spouse, the reason that you forgive your spouse, it's not because they always deserve it or they did the dishes or they've been really nice today, it's because of the reverence of Christ. And he is worthy of it all the time. All the time. How you treat your spouse is worship. It's worship. Which means, and I want you to hear this, you don't need a good wife in order to be a good husband. And you don't need a good husband in order to be a good wife. You need a great savior who you understand is worthy of your worship and that you show worship to him through the way that you treat your wife or your husband. It's done out of reverence for Christ. And maybe what is missing in your marriage is the failure to see how you treat your spouse is connected to your reverence for Jesus Christ and see your marriage as a picture of the gospel that you are to display to people around you. Because when you get that, and then you have to forgive your spouse, that's the gospel. When you're in hardship, but yet you're faithful to a promise, that's the gospel. Because God is faithful to his promise. He's never going to leave you or forsake you. His grace is sufficient. You find full forgiveness, complete forgiveness in it. He's able to forgive to the uttermost. And if in some small way your marriage can show that to the world, like, oh, he did that to you? How could you stay with him? i tell you how I can stay with him. Because Christ forgave me. Oh, he doesn't do this for you or she doesn't do this. Or I would move on. I know, but I won't. Because I made a promise. And you know where I learned to keep my promise? God's faithful promise keeping to me. When you understand your marriage is not just about your own fulfillment, but the proclamation of a greater love in Jesus Christ. Guys, marriage is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It is a gift from God. But bigger than just the enjoyment we find in marriage, it's a picture of Christ's love for his church. And we need to cook it up right. We need to look into the Bible to find these ingredients that need to be a part of our relationship, a part of our marriage. 
And when people come here on Sundays just to check things out, or you got so many college students that come to this church, unmarried singles, that like unique proportion in your church, um, which is a, is a beautiful thing. But when they come here on Sunday mornings, this place ought to feel like Costco. Do you know what I mean by that? Like when you go to Costco, one of the things I like about it is the free samples, right? You just go like, I can taste things. I can sample things. Like you get a taste of something and it's like, oh, let's throw that in the cart, right? You want that. That's why Mars doesn't bring me with her. But when people come here and they interact with the married couples of this church, I hope they just get a taste of the sweetness of the covenant of marriage, the beauty of commitment and love. They'd get a sample of the gospel and they would see your marriages and they'd like, I want that. That's what marriage should look like. But they wouldn't just see you and like want that marriage. They would see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ and they would get a taste of it. And if you're wrestling in your marriage right now and you're like, I don't know if it's tasting like I think it should taste. I don't know if it's tasting like I want it to taste. I hope some of these ingredients that we talked about might stir up a conversation for you to have with your spouse. Like, I think we need to add some more of this. I think, I think this is missing in our marriage. And I hope that it would enhance the flavor, that you would enjoy the good gift of God. Let's pray. Father, marriage is a, is a gift And even your illustration to the world about Christ's love for his church is an illustration that's enjoyable. And that just speaks of your goodness. You know what you're talking about. You're a good God who can be trusted. And I thank you for all the wisdom you give us in your word. I pray that we would have apply your truth into our marriages that we would taste what you have for us and others would see your goodness. We pray this in your name. Amen.